Hello and welcome to the Methodical Methodist Podcast, a podcast where we talk about why the church is still relevant for us today as we explore themes connected to religion, politics, pop culture, faith, and yes, even the church. Together we can find out what it means to live into the mission of the church by making disciples. Now, let's get methodical. All right, glad to have my uh, old old friend Logan Murphy with me on the podcast today. Uh, we were talking earlier and realized that we had actually been in kindergarten together, so it's kind of cool right. to uh, to connect and have you. So um, I thought if you, it's if it's okay if you just share a little bit about who you are, uh, what you're doing now, kind of your journey to to what got you where you are now. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it is crazy how long we've known each other. And, and in some ways, you know, I, I kind of initiated this conversation because I, I was just struck by the similarities that you and I grew up basically together. We weren't always super close friends or anything like that. Um, but, you know, we've had this kind of parallel path that that God has really taken us on in some ways because I, I, I followed you on social media and I've seen seen things about your life and and uh, noticed you were pastor, and obviously I'm a pastor um, as well, associate pastor in my church or associate pastor at your church, and um, we both went to seminary and things like that. So it just kind of seen how we've had these parallel paths in some ways, and obviously we, our lives are different in a lot of other ways too. But um, but just kind of neat to kind of follow you from a distance and, and see what you're up to. And um, yeah. so yeah, I mean, basically since we went to school together. Um, and we, we went to school together, I think elementary, middle and high school, right? Yes, um, absolutely. so all through the, um, kind of first, first stages of our lives into, um, emerging adulthood. And, um, from there I went to Lee university, um, which is in our, you know, our hometown, Cleveland, Tennessee, and studied pastoral ministry there. Uh, from tw- 2010 till 2014. Um, while I was there, I met my wife, Michelle, and um, that was uh, just a wonderful time of life. I really loved that season um, there at Lee, even though it was in our hometown, it was still enjoyable. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was going to ask you, did you know going into college that you felt like you God was calling you to be a pastor? Absolutely. Um, so I, I have a, a unique kind of experience of being called to ministry that um, not not everyone has this experience or should have this experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it makes me special in any way, but um, God called me um, to ministry uh, when I was 16. Um, and it was kind of a, a, a wild process because I was uh, raised in these uh, kind of independent fundamentalist Baptist churches in Tennessee and Cleveland there. And my parents were, um, we were kind of between churches, um, in that year, I think it was 2008 If that. Yeah. I think it was 2008, uh, March of 2008 is actually when I felt like God was calling me into ministry. So we were in between churches and we were visiting a, a local church there, a Baptist church there. Um, I think it was, um, Klingon Ridge Baptist Church, actually, oh, yeah. you're familiar with that uh, church there. So we were visiting one Sunday and they had an altar call. And, you know, anymore, I, I, I don't know if that's still popular in some churches or maybe Klingon Ridge still does one. I don't know. But um, the church I'm at now, we don't do altar calls. Um, that's yeah. just kind of a, a thing of like, eh, it's kind of it happened. And then, you know, right. it doesn't happen anymore. But <laughs> But I, I felt like I was, God was calling me and I, I had already, you know, placed my faith in Christ as, as a five-year-old, you know, so I grew up in a Christian home and, and uh, so I was like, I'm not being saved, I don't think, you know, there's something else happening here. And it really was uh, this kind of emotional, like whole experience where I, I felt like God was really speaking to me and calling me um, to, to be in ministry and that wherever that meant, I knew that that meant, you know, preaching the word and discipling people, just really, you know, helping other people know God and, and love God and um, grow in their faith. And, 
So whatever that looks like, I've always been open to, you know, different roles in ministry, um, whether that's senior pastor, youth pastor, or, you know, family, whatever that looks like, it's always been the same calling to like, you know, help, help other people know God and love God and um, especially Christ. Um, So, yeah, so that was my experience to being called to ministry and God bless that church because they called me like within the first week of me saying, I felt called. And they were like, how would you like to preach at this Wednesday night service? Wow. Um, as a 16 year old. Right. Wow. And I, I somewhere, and this is, this is really bad. Um, I'm, I'm super embarrassed by this, but I actually have here in my office, um, these like little note cards from basically the first sermon that I preached um, when I was 16 years old at this uh, church. And uh, yeah, it's right here. It was from the book of Joshua. Um, nice. And so interesting choice for a first sermon too. <laughs> I know. Yes. I said, old God Seth. bless that. God bless that church. Because like looking back on it now, you know, having a two, two higher degrees in, in, you know, Bible and theology and stuff. It's like, I did not know what I was talking about. <laughs> You know, that's, Logan, that's funny because I took an appointment. My first appointment was when I was going to seminary. So, I mean, I, I technically was finishing up my undergrad, which I got in religion, but still, like, I knew nothing and still don't know anything. But uh, the, the first sermon series I decided I was going to preach on were the parables, which, yes. like, those are, like – by design difficult to understand yeah. <laughs> like, exactly like, so yeah hey josh josh was not a bad move i, I like it yeah I like yeah it. so it was uh it was very interesting but that was how i got kind of called into ministry and um it was really a profound experience and um i've just felt like that's been solidified right throughout various seasons of my life uh, including like you know my mom said she had felt early on, um, even like potentially before I was born, she felt like, yeah, I, I really felt like you were going to be called to ministry. Like the Lord kind of put that in my heart that that, that was something I had sensed, but, you know, just as shows her wisdom, she, she was wanting to not, you know, influence me in any way and, and, you know, put that expectation on me, but really wanted me to, to come to that. If, if the Lord so called me, you know, that would confirm that, what he had said to her was legit too, right? Instead of her just kind of like, oh, I kind of feel in my spirit, like, well, that could also be, you know, I mean, you know, it's hard sometimes to differentiate what God is telling us versus what we just kind of feel like, you know? So, right. oh, yeah. Absolutely. So there's levels at which it gets confirmed by other people. And that was kind of cool. And, um, and God has done that in my life too, right? To confirm that calling when, whenever I had other people who've influenced me or, or, you know, obviously the church I'm at now literally called me to come work here, to serve here. So that was a real affirmation as well. Absolutely. So speaking of where, where are you currently? Not to, not to jump ahead of your story, but just real quick, yes. if you don't mind. No, no, it's good. Um, I am uh, serving as an associate pastor at, this is a mouthful. You ready? The Evangelical Free Church of Mount Morris in Mount Morris, Illinois. So evangelical free church, Mount Morris, um, which is not like sugar free, right? Like we, it's not like we don't have evangelicals in our church. We do. Um, <laughs> and there's a, it's a denomination, you know, it's based out of um, kind of the Midwest. I had never heard of it before we moved to Illinois. So it's, it's not as prominent in the Southeast actually. Gotcha. So if I, I guess my question, one question might be, is there a similar denomination to the South that people might, or is this kind of completely different from what you might experience? Yeah. Uh, so it, it is really a unique thing. And, you know, I, I don't want to get too far into the history of it, but it basically uh, was a marriage of the Swedish Evangelical Free Church and Norwegian Danish Evangelical Free Church. So it's kind of based out of that movement um, when immigrants from those countries came to the States. Um, about 1950, they were like, why are we calling ourselves the Swedish Evangelical Free Church of America? You know, it's like it doesn't make sense anymore. 
So obviously, you know, that is not as well known in the Southeast because there's less Swedish, Norwegian, Danish immigrants in that area. So we have that kind of um, background, although we are a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, of course, you know, global, you know, hope, hope to be global movement in that sense. So we're, we're definitely not tied to any ethnic or national identity. Um, but that's certainly part of our heritage and history. And, um, so it's, it's kind of hard to, to place it exactly, um, on a, on a map in terms of theology and belief, but, um, so that we'd have some similarities to maybe Baptists in some ways, um, other similarities to, um, like non-denominational churches, perhaps, um, a big mantra for our denomination is major on the majors and minor on the minors. So we, we place a high, um, emphasis on unity in the essentials, right. And charity on like some other things, um, but Christ in all things. Right. Right. Um, so that's, there's a lot of those kind of mantras floating around there. Um, we'd like to be strongly biblical, um, so part of our history, you know, it's a phrase like where stands it written, right, in scripture. So when they're talking about arguments over theology or whatever, they, they're always like, hey, let's go back to the source, right? Let's go back to scripture. Let's let's look for where uh, where we see this here. Um, so there's a high respect for the Bible, um, theology, um, and yet there's a lot of grace for people on, you know, certain issues that, that aren't essential, um, you know, kind of beliefs for um, salvation or whatever. So like, that's a good example with the kind of Calvinist Arminian, you know, perspective lenses, right? We don't actually have a, a specific stream. So we have both camps represented in our denomination, actually. So kind of unique. I think that's so cool. Like I, I can see how that could be um, really freeing for people to come and be like, Hey, this is a, this is, and it's what the church should look like. You know, we, we agree on the majors, but on the minors, it's okay if we don't agree on sure. it. I think that's, I think that's really neat. I, I can see as a pastor, how that might be challenging um, at times, like yes, on a particular passage of scripture, how do you interpret this? And I bet some people are listening, you know, keeping their ears to the ground a little bit on that. Yeah, so. for sure. Yeah, it, it can. And, and, you know, free is definitely, it's kind of a, the um, operating word, you know, sometimes we're like labeled as being too free, right? <laughs> there's, there's certain things, certain uh, other denominations or, or groups that are like really like to be like really staunch about things kind of maybe charge the evangelical free church with being too free on things. <laughs> but I, I think it's pretty, it's pretty solid in terms of, you know, we, we have strong convictions. We're not just kind of like whatever goes, but we have strong, stronger convictions on things that are stronger in the Bible, right? In, in Christian history, you know, in the history of the church and things like that. So we just don't want to quibble over, you know, smaller matters that are less essential. And that's, that's kind of the, the, the key. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, I think that's a really um, unique and, um, kind of a, a special way of, of doing things. I, I like that. I kind of wish all of us were a little bit more, more like that, you know, um, particularly when we see culture that is so black and white on things, you yeah. have to know where you stand on everything. So to have a place where people can come and it, you know what, like, yeah, we got strong convictions. Yeah. We know what we believe, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna, you know, attack each other over over the things that it's okay to disagree on. So I think that's, sure. I think that's special. Um, well, that's cool, man. Um, anything else you want to share about kind of your call and your journey as to how you got to where you are now? Yeah. So I mean, um, this will kind of be a part of the, our discussion in a little bit in terms of the, um, I've already kind of referenced the Calvinist and Arminian, and I don't want to use technical terms. Maybe some of those terms are just not as familiar to, to people and, and that's okay. Um, well, we can kind of talk a little bit about what some of that means, but basically, you know, the idea of kind of human freedom, responsibility, God's, you know, sovereignty over, um, you know, how salvation works out and, 
you know, is it man's choice or God's choice? And some of those other things that, um, that faithful Christians have disagreed on, you know, in, in ways that are both well-reasoned and well-informed. And that's what part of the disagreement between Whitfield, um, George Whitfield and John Wesley was over these exact issues, even though they were friends. Um, but I think I'm kind of unique in that sense too, because I came from a more Arminian Wesleyan background growing up. And then I became more reformed Calvinistic in, in my thinking since then. So, um, so that's been, um, kind of an interesting, um, journey. I, I've definitely seen, um, positives and negatives on both sides of those, um, of the aisle there. And, and I think it's helped me, right. To be a little bit more well-rounded in, in the sense that like, I know faithful Christians who dis I disagree with now on certain things, but I don't think that they're necessarily wrong or sinful or whatever so much as like, we just, we don't see it the same way. Right. And um, I think it helps give me a little bit more charity. Um, plus I, I, like I, I was, had read the Bible in, in that way before. And I think it's, it's not um, worse or anything. It's just a different way of reading the Bible and I'm in a different place now, but um, so that, that's kind of an interesting uh, perspective too. And I still have, you know, family and, and uh, other people that I'm very close to who, who are on that other side of the seeing some things differently than, than I do now. So I think that's kind of helpful, you know, to be able to have more of an ecumenical broad experience, which, you know, I've had with some of the um, charismatic churches that I've got family in, in those kind of church camps and, and more kind of mainline people and, you know, evangelical, you know, fundamentalist Baptist, I've seen it all, you know, so I feel like that's kind of helped me embrace some of that charity, you know, towards people who I might disagree with them now, but I don't think they're sinful or horrible people. And maybe they're really faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who I could be encouraged by and even challenged by some of their um, ways of thinking differently than me. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, really what we're going to be talking about in this episode is, is a lot of the relationship between the Wesleys and George Whitfield. And we see, we see them go kind of in different directions and different paths. And although at, at times um, things can be tense, seems like they were pretty tense uh, between the, the, them. Uh, they were able to kind of come, come back around at the end of things. It, it sounds sure. like. Um, but, I, you know, I thought we'd talk a little bit about that, about how that relationship started, kind of yeah. what happened, and then how things did wrap, wrap up in the end of, of that. For sure. Yes, I don't know. Um, you, you mentioned, obviously, you're, you're more the, uh, the, I don't know if you'd say expert, but you're, you're definitely more well-versed in uh, the Wesleys than I am in, yeah. in that. Um, and I'm no, I'm, I'm not a... Uh, you know, scholar of George Whitfield or anything. I just, you know, had to study, um, you know, American church history for some of my classes and George Whitfield just stuck out as a, um, just, I mean, he's such a big personality and really the Wesleys work too, but in, in their own different ways, but, um, Whitfield, you know, just for, for anyone who maybe doesn't know anything about Whitfield, right. So he was born in, uh, the early 1700s, so obviously a contemporary of the Wesleys, um, although he was a few years younger than John and, and Charles Wesley. Um, but so he's from, from England, right? He was um, part of the Anglican church or the church of England um, and became really um, you know, popular as a preacher. Um, he had a theater background. So some of the, some of his, um, you know, style of preaching was very dramatic. And um, for, for better or worse, he gets criticized for that by some, and he gets praised by others. In fact, they, they even talked about how um, someone wrote that the way he, he could pronounce the word Mesopotamia could make men cry, you know, <laughs> it's like grown <laughs> men cry. So um, I, I kind of envy that in some ways. I'm like, man, if, if I could just speak like him, um, that'd be amazing. Maybe people would listen to what I had to say. No, pronunciation. Yes. Yeah. I can't quite say the word Mesopotamia and have grown men in tears. Um, 
but <laughs> but it was it was very theatrical and um and there's there's more and I, I i can't recall all of it off off the top of my head but he had a theater background and he kind of saw that as something that um you know on the one hand he he saw it as kind of a vice that he needed to avoid but then he kind of redeemed that uh experience and saying like he was gonna he basically used that experience to proclaim really powerfully the things that he felt were, were true um the, the gospel right um, the good news about Jesus. And um, so very evangelistic. And he w- went to Oxford and that's where he met. Um, that's where he met the Wesleys. And, um, you know, maybe you could speak to, I mean, you, you know, that they had the kind of group there, the Holy Club, and you could probably talk a little bit about that, but that's where he met them. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, that's right. Yeah. He uh, joined Oxford, went to uh, Pembroke College in Oxford and uh, met Charles Wesley first. Charles was really kind of the founder of the Holy club. And it wasn't until later that John came down and saw what Charles was doing, heard uh, Charles had written John and said, Hey, you got to come down here and see kind of what we're up to. And John came down and really became the leader and organizer of that group. And so uh, it's kind of interesting because I think I got the sense that that George Whitfield had more of a brotherly relationship with Charles and then kind of a spiritual father relationship with John. He really, he really looked up to John. Yeah. Um, and kind of idolized him uh, at the beginning of kind of their friendship. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It, it definitely started off that way. And, and, you know, Charles was um, instrumental in, and I think it's interesting that Charles is kind of the, I know within Methodism, everyone kind of knows Charles Wesley, or they know that he was a great hymnist and, and all that stuff wrote like thousands of, of hymns, some three, 4,000 hymns. Um, and a lot of them we're still singing in churches today, including our church, you know, we sing a bunch of them. So huge impact. Um, but in some ways he's kind of underrated because everyone thinks about John Wesley and like Charles was the one who, like you said, started the, the Holy club. Mm-hmm. Charles was the one who handed George Whitfield a copy of uh, a book, uh, called the life of God in the soul of man. Hmm. And Whitfield said um, he, he largely credited his experience of new birth, right? This kind of vital experience of regeneration of being like reborn um, experiencing his faith um, in a deeper new way. He credited that to Charles um, giving him this, this book. Um, so really Charles was kind of the unsung hero there, um, had a huge impact on, on him. But I, I think I would agree with that assessment because later on, you know, Whitfield is, of course, Wesley is older than Whitfield by about 11 years. So um, definitely a, a little bit more of that fob, more fatherly figure in the early, early stages. Um, he even wrote Wesley and asked him for advice, like even on things like his diet and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like just personal advice. Right. So I think that's a, that's a great assessment. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting because I mean, Whitfield by all accounts was a Methodist. I mean, he, sure. he was a um, Oxford Methodist is, is kind of the term those, that Holy club group was um, they were methodical in what they did. And John was kind of, the the leader of that he he it was down to diet you know down to all yeah. the, all the th- yes. little tiny aspects of every every day what do you do you know john was living that out and the rest of them were were doing it too um i did find what a cool a- what a cool thing too like i, I kind of wish we could bring that back right like uh, <laughs> make like a high school guys group Ooh. called the holy club and bring that back for our our high schoolers, that'd be kind of neat, wouldn't it? Oh my goodness. So. You know, I, I've talked a little bit in, in other episodes about what all that entailed and it was, it was intensive. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, to say I, the least, I don't want to get up that early. I'll just say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, there's a reason that you call those people devout, right? Like these guys are devout and, and that, that could be said about Whitfield too. I mean, just the staggering commitment to um, not only just, you know, discipleship and, and study and prayer and, and personal holiness and, and all of those like wonderful um, kind of pietistic ways of, of coming about, you know, 
the Christian faith, like it's really, it, it's all encompassing, right? Like this faith is not just something that is on Sunday morning. It's not something that's disconnected from the rest of the week. It really is for these guys. They are living it out day to day. Like you said, super ground level, um, like, and, and they're really committed. <laughs> they're like the Marines of Christians in some ways. You kind of think of them in that way. So, uh, you know, you, you do think that there's something worth emulating there and you want to give yourself grace too. Cause like not everyone's going to have that much, um, ability, but, um, but Whitfield too, man, with his preaching, um, the amount of times that he preached, um, and the crowds that he preached to, I mean, you just see how these guys were super sold out for Jesus and they invested their lives, uh, for this, um, maybe more than they should have. Uh, by some standards, right? Because Whitfield died pretty early on. He was like 50 um, something um, when he died. Um, and, and there's, you know, you could say a lot about that because he, he basically sacrificed his health on the altar of, of ministry. Um, mm-hmm. So for better or worse. That, that's, that's so interesting because, you know, John, John Wesley lived a very strenuous life. Two traveling, I mean, thousands of miles, wrote hundreds of sermons. I mean, just preached sure. multiple times a day in different places, and and actually ended up living. He was born in 1703, died in 1791. Yeah, it's amazing. But, but the sacrifice that he gave up, part part of it, I'm sure, was his health. I mean, but sure. part of that was his his relationship, his his with his wife had a horrible relationship with his wife. He sacrificed yeah. that. Um, and sometimes he, he, you know, John, for, for lack of a better way of saying this, he just, he could kind of be a jerk. He would hold grudges. <laughs> I mean, he would. You yes. know, if you didn't, if you didn't agree with John, John was ready to write you off. And, and a lot mm. of times Charles would have to come in and help mend those relationships. And I think we see that some. Absolutely. Whitfield. Yeah, absolutely. We do. Yeah. I, I think of that just in the, um, again, I'm not, I'm not a scholar, but the, the stuff that I've read has, has largely confirmed what you're saying there. You know, Charles was kind of this intermediary that, that really wanted to see John and, and George um, relate uh, well and, and to be together on some of these things. Now, Charles, I mean, of course, he, if he's going to pick sides, right, <laughs> he's going to probably pick his brother. And he does, you know, in certain ways, like uh, some of the theological disagreements that they have about, you know, universal redemption or something like that. And, and I know that's a big term and maybe lay, lay people listening will need to dig into that. And, and you can, that, that can get applied in really bad ways. But the way that the, um, the Wesleys believe it, it's not totally orthodox kind of understanding of what um, just Christ died for all, right? Like that's, that's kind of the, the big thing. And, um, and Whitfield would say, no, Christ died for, you know, the elect or the ones that God chose that he would save. And that's, you know, you could argue it comes down to semantics or whatever. We're making too big of a deal over these things, but, um, but Charles would, you know, obviously he wanted to see them, you know, not arguing over some of these things, but he did, he did side with um, his brother in one of his hymns, he even, he even kind of, all caps, you know, I don't know if you, <laughs> if he's a, uh, he like all caps, you know, basically, I can't remember exactly the line. Maybe you, you know, that one that he kind of agrees with, um, yes. with his brother in, in that stuff. So. It's, uh, it's in his hymn, Wrestling Jacob. He capped yeah. the sentence, pure universal love thou art. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, I mean, I guess it kind of serves the same function as, uh, you know, all caps on uh, social media today. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. like, you know, pay attention to this. I don't know if he's screaming, but um, certainly, <laughs> certainly screaming for attention. So, yeah, kind of interesting. Yeah, you know, I mean, Charles, too, could could get angry about stuff and, and be a little vindictive. I don't think to the point that John could, but. Charles, yeah. had a, Charles had a temper too. There's a, 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 is a story, you know, John had written a sermon called Free Grace, right. which, which was part of this chain of events that took place that really started to drive George Whitfield apart from the Wesleys. But he, he, he basically wrote this whole account um, really condemning this idea of predestination, meaning that 
that some some people are really preordained or predestined uh, for salvation. And and I know that's a, that's a very basic general description of that. But um, you know, so John's really speaking out. It kind of begins that idea that this Calvinist idea, and knowing that George Whitfield is preaching about this as a Methodist. Yes. And yeah. a lot of people are listening to George. George, like you said, George is very, he's a very popular preacher. And so we find out later, George preaches in a Methodist building. And with Charles sitting right behind him, yeah. begins preaching just the exact opposite of that free grace sermon yes. that John had preached. And it says that, you know, in this, this account, that uh, Charles is just sitting behind him, just fuming. He's just so angry, you know, <laughs> this kind of, deli- it's almost like this deliberate, like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to go against exactly what you said. Yeah. And, and, and you see that, uh, I mean, both of them, right. Both of them do the same thing. Cause uh, when you reference the, uh, the sermon that, that John uh, preached called free grace. And the funny thing is in private correspondence, you know, Whitfield basically said, please don't publish anything against what I'm teaching. And, and you, you know, to, to get at the heart of the matter, right? You know, these, these guys got worked up about things. And I think it's easy for us to look back and be like, man, they got so upset about this. And like, that's, you know, how, how terrible that they could argue on these things. But I think at the end of the day, right, they, they argued passionately because they had strong convictions. And, and they really did feel very strongly about these things. And they felt like, and and we could say, you know, I think hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Like maybe they felt too strongly about some of these things than, than they should have, and maybe they argued more than they needed to when they could. They had so many points of agreement, you know, that right. you know, and you don't want to just give into the spirit of like, well, let's just agree to disagree, and therefore not talk about anything of importance. Right. They wanted to talk about things of eternal importance and things that were important to people's faith, and um. And that's, you know, give credit where credit is due. I mean, that that's great. I mean, I, I think there's so much to be said there mm-hmm. um, about having strong convictions, not just kind of like, well, whatever, you know, you believe this and I believe that that's no big deal. Um, but yeah, I think they, they definitely both um, had, had issues. So George, George Whitfield said, you know, don't, don't publish this and whether he had a right or not to tell Wesley what to do, you know, we could, we could talk about that, but Wesley basically said, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cast a lot, right? And, uh, and Wesley did this, you know, <laughs> from time to time. And this is a point of contention with, with Whitfield. Um, and Whitfield brings it back up later on. But Wesley said, I'm going to cast a lot. And if, if the lot falls for it, then I'm going to say, you know, yes, I'll, I'll preach against uh, what Whitfield is, is preaching. And the lot fell in that direction. And um, Wesley said, well, now I have... Um, Basically, I am in, he said, I'm indispensably obliged to declare this truth to all the world. And, um, and of course, Whitfield, when he responds to this um, in, in the intro to Wesley's sermon, he says, I, you know, I, I got to kind of push back on you there, buddy, because, you know, to say that you're indispensably obliged to declare this because of, you know, casting a lot. He was like, you know, I recall this one time that I ca- you cast a lot, whether you would see me or not, or, or there's something. To, do, you, do you remember this effect? So yeah. they they were in the same harbor or the same port, um, and um, I don't remember if I uh, made a note of that, but mm-hmm. somewhere they were basically a, kind of their ships were in the same uh, harbor or port, and um, it was not clear whether or not they were going to see each other and. Uh, Wesley casts a lot to see, you know, am I going to basically see Whitfield and, and the lot falls in the opposite direction. And he kind of tells Whitfield, you know, um, I think, does he tell him to return to London or something like that? Yeah, I can't, re- I wish I could find it. I can't remember exactly what happened there, but it was something like that. They, yeah, so it's, it's a pretty interesting, um, it's a pretty interesting story. Um, I have it in uh, Whitfield's um, letters. Um, you know, he basically responded to um, to that sermon, and and he in his introduction, that's that's basically what he says. You know, um, 
that they were at the, uh, let's see, the D. Oh, okay, so Whitfield sailed from Deal for Gibraltar on the 2nd of February, 1738. Um, and you arrived from Georgia. Instead of giving me an opportunity to converse with you, though the ship was not far off the shore, you drew a lot and immediately set forward to London. And then you left a letter behind you in which were words to this effect. When I saw that God, by the wind which was carrying you out, brought me in, I asked counsel of God, his answer you have enclosed. This was a piece of paper in which were written these words, let him return to London. And, uh, and then he, he goes on and says that, you know, here was a good man telling me he had cast a lot and that God would have me return to London. On the other hand, I knew my call was to Georgia and I had taken leave of London. And uh, he was basically saying, I, I, I couldn't do that, right? Like, so he, he prayed about it and uh, with a friend and he was like, no, I can't, I can't go against what God has told me to do just because, you know, Wesley cast a lot. So, so he takes issue with Wesley over this idea of like, you know, casting a lot and, and discerning God's will that way, which, you know, I, I think there's a certain irony there because you get some Calvinists who are like, you know, God's sovereignty and, and like, you know, the, the proverb, it's like the lot is cast in, in the lap and it's every decision is from the Lord. And I'm sure that's where Wesley gets that from. It, it feels like a very Calvinistic doctrine. So yes. it's kind of funny that, that he relies so much on that, but. This is um, true. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> It feels like a kind of deterministic, you know, idea, fatalistic thing. So Whitfield kind of calls him to task on that. And he's like, now, wait a minute, you know, yeah. <laughs> you cast a lot, but, um, it's also but, a but really dangerous game too, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like... <laughs> yes. So, but they, but they had that argument, you know, over that. And that was, that was one of the, um, you know, just kind of things that you look back on and you, and you see these guys writing letters back and forth or responding to each other. And you're like, but this is exactly what people are doing on social media. <laughs> yeah. On the news, CNN, yeah. whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's not happen. new, right? It's like Ecclesiastes. Right. There's nothing new under the sun. Like people have been disagreeing on things. Um, and, and over what we might think are good reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this has been happening for a long time. So I think we can learn, right. We can learn from some of the positives and some of the negatives. Um, and that's what I, you know, thought would be so interesting for us to talk about, you know, a little bit is just kind of like, what, what are things that we can take away from the relationship between Whitfield and Wesley? And, um, what are some things that we maybe don't want to take, like take away, but like, don't do this. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and that's, and that's interesting because I think in, in, in many ways, both of them, gained some really important things that relied on each other in some ways. Um, I mean, really, the, John Wesley influenced George Whitfield and made George Whitfield who George Whitfield was. And the sure. reverse is the same. You know, there's one of my favorite stories about John Wesley is um, he had preached to the point in, in these English churches and, and he had preached to the point where he had upset so many priests that they were mm. barring him from, from all these churches. And so he was barred for, from almost every church in England, which is kind of hard for me to imagine. <laughs> and he, he was kind of at a, a loss. He wasn't, he wasn't able to preach, which if you've ever read any of Wesley's sermons, it's not like he's, you know, you read them now and you're like, what's the big deal? But yeah, back yeah. then it was this, you know, you know, how how could you say these things? Um, but George Whitfield actually had this encounter with John. He said, hey, I'm preaching out in the fields. I'm open air preaching. I'm preaching to these coal miners and you would not believe the response I'm getting. You've mm-hmm. got to do this. You've got to try this. And John Wesley responds uh, in, a, in a letter later on. I submitted to be more vile, meaning <laughs> I'm going to step out of my pulpit and go out in the field yeah. and preach to the masses and the common people, the common people. And and John Wesley brought a traveling pulpit with him, but um, <laughs> it's, it's this idea that he, you know, that's what made the Methodist movement take off was really because George Whitfield said, get out of the church building Go yeah. out the fields and preach to people, 
and John did. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Charles Wesley, you know, his role in, in Whitfield's new birth experience, uh, John Wesley's mentorship of Whitfield, Whitfield's influence on, you know, Wesley's field preaching, you know, this is this movement. I mean, they were really, and, and I think, you know, everywhere else you'll, you'll read this kind of thing too, that the methods and the, the societies and the kind of things that uh, the structures, right. That uh, the Wesley's were kind of about in terms of discipleship, right. Training people in the faith um, really Whitfield relied on them as Whitfield is kind of out preaching this message and, you know, being very charismatic in his delivery and dramatic and, and persuasive, right. People are coming to faith in Christ in, you know, He's he's basically taking these new converts and then dumping them off on the Wesleys and saying, now, now disciple these people because I got to go back to Wales, right? Because <laughs> um, he's just preaching, 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 preaching. So um, so I think Whitfield really did, even though they disagreed on certain things, I think, and maybe that's why the disagreement got so heated is because, you know, uh, Whitfield in some ways saw them as partners and they, they were, they had such a synergistic, you know, thing going on so that, you know, now, if they're preaching two different things, that's going to, that's going to, of course, it's going to cause friction. Right. Um, and, um, and so I think, you know, they, they really were um, at the end of the day, unified on the key things, right? Like the, the gospel about salvation in Christ, um, the experience of new birth, right. The new life um, that was such a, um, you know, the, the role of the Holy Spirit in all this, you know, they, they are in many ways, they're on the same page, you know, so it's, so it is kind of sad when you see these disagreements um, cause a rift that, that seems irreversible. And, and it's really not in some ways. And, and, you know, they, they both in their correspondence to each other or in their sermons, you know, they do have a certain level of charity, um, you know, so that in, um, you know, um, like John Wesley's sermon, free grace, right. Um, he says something to, to the effect of this, you know, he says that I, I'm saying this because I'm indispensably obliged to declare this truth to all the world. Um, and, and nothing but the strongest conviction, conviction that this is the truth could have induced me openly to oppose the sentiments of those whom I esteem for their work's sake. At whose feet may I be found in the day of the Lord Jesus? And of course, who does who is he saying I esteem for their work's sake? I mean, he's that's a that's a subtle nod. Of course, that's that's he's talking about Whitfield here. He disagrees yeah. with um, the sentiments of Whitfield, but he does esteem Whitfield right for his work. And and the same thing could be said about Whitfield in his response to um, to uh, to Wesley. Right? He says, you know, the great day will discover why the Lord permits. Mr. Wesley and me to be of a different way of uh, thinking, but, but he, he says later on that, you know, he would basically, um, he basically counted joy to suffer um, with, you know, he says, what, if the Lord should call us to it, talk about John Wesley and George Whitfield, I care not if I go with him to prison or to death for like Paul and Silas, I hope we shall sing praises to God and count it our highest honor to suffer for Christ's sake. And to lay down our lives for the brethren. So these guys are, you know, they do love each other with Christian love, even though they disagree strongly and uh, and, and all that. So it, there, there's so much to, to emulate there, and there's some to avoid. But yeah, um, yeah. Well, that, that that's true. I mean, they tensions are high at times, but at the end of the day, you know, it, by by 1742, tempers had cooled off. They're they're starting to kind of see, hey, let's let's agree on the major and and not get so upset about the minor, in some ways. And and um, in 1755, I saw uh, an article that said that uh, Charles Wesley wrote, "Come on, my Whitfield, since the strife is past and friends at first are friends again at last." Um, Charles was known for writing about what was going on exactly in his life. Mm, he wrote yeah. lyrics about everything, but um, you know, it, it's, it's good to see that that relationship came back around in the end. Sure. 
because that would have been a you know that would have been a shame to have just ended yeah uh, so and and you know phenomenally i mean it, it didn't end because the disagreement they they right. never became of the same mind as as they talk about you know in these letters the lord did not permit them to to come to the same conclusions in this life and yet there was kind of a, a turning um point i mean even uh, as i understand it john wesley preached george whitfield's funeral um yeah which is which is really man that's that's what a testament uh, can you think of someone just today in our our kind of heated environment you can't even think about that right like someone who vehemently disagrees with someone else like pre, you know preaching their like saying a eulogy at someone's funeral like like i i hate this like you hear this this in discourse you know it's almost like nobody can disagree without hating someone yeah. um disagreements go far beyond um you know just ideological stuff it's, people get really worked up about it and, and it's it's less about the ideas as it is like no i i can't stand these people and that is man something that we ought to lament and and avoid at all costs especially as christians right um the bible says that the world will know us by our love for one another um not by our you know petty divisions over minor points of doctrine so yeah yeah you know, it's, it's, they, they never came to a point where the Calvinist Methodists and the, and the, I'll call them Wesleyan Methodists sure. merged. They, they, they remained separate. Um, they never came together, but they did come to an agreement between the leaders. They came back together as friends. Whitfield refused to build uh, Calvinist chapels in places where, John Wesley already had established Wesleyan societies and Wesley agreed to the verse. He wasn't going to start a society where there was already a Calvinist or um, yeah, Whitfield uh, chapel. So uh, this article that we've, we've looked at also kind of points to this idea that one of the reasons maybe that they were able to reconcile is because Whitfield eventually kind of gave up his leadership of the Calvinist Methodists and focused on preaching. He didn't want yeah. to, to do the organization that John was, John was preaching everywhere, but he was still organizing. Um, Whitfield just wanted to focus on the preaching and, and that released tensions enough for the, for them to, to be able to reconcile. Sure. Yeah. So that, so there's a respect there. Um, that I think was reestablished toward, toward the end, like you said, just, just in the kind of like we came to some terms, right, for how we're going to go about this. Um, there's respect, but there's, there's um, complementarity. And we kind of talked about that already, but in terms of like, you know, the evangelism versus discipleship, right? So like just telling people about the good news that they need to respond to about who Jesus is. And like, yeah, there is something, there is sin to repent of. There is uh, salvation to be found in Christ. And, and let's freely offer that to people, right? So the one thing that Whitfield, um, you know, whether they disagree on some of the particulars of this um, in terms of, you know, it, did Christ die for everyone? Did he die for just the ones that he's going to choose to be saved? But what they both agree on is that the message of the gospel is for everyone, right? Um, so Wesley kind of says, well, it doesn't make sense that you say it's for a select few, but then you preach it to everybody. What, what's the point of that? But Whitfield says, well, yeah, I kind of believe that. But at the same time, I also wholeheartedly believe that I'm going to preach the gospel to everyone and say, come one, come all, right? Like This yeah. message is for everybody um, in some way. Um, yeah, it's for everybody. Um, and we want to uh, just herald that. Like, that's, that's cool, man, that they could, they could come together on, on some of the particulars and, and um, the important things. Yeah. So, yeah, what a what a relationship. I mean, <laughs> roller roller coaster. Moments. Roller coaster. Absolutely. But um, well, I mean, do you think we as a church today, um, how how might we grow from looking at their example? Yeah, I, I, I think, um, you know, the, 
the thing that I, I want to take away from this really, um, the, the probably the most important thing, right, is it's good to develop strong convictions, especially based off the Bible, you know, um, and whether you take one perspective or another, you know, Calvinist or Arminian or, or whatever, you know, it, it's good to hold those things strongly, mm-hmm. um, but it's especially good to hold them biblically, right? And to have charity with people who don't see that same way. So like I, I mentioned this is my, and my denomination, but I sat on an ordination council like a couple of weeks ago. And um, there was a guy who was being ordained in our denomination. And he, um, the way he reads scripture is from a more Arminian um, perspective. So he would agree more with the Wesleys if you're kind of wondering how, I mean, we don't have to get into the particulars, but a little bit more Wesleyan, Arminian reading of understanding of the scriptures. Um, And he was sitting in a room full of people who are listening to him and having him defend his um, his doctrine and, and, and stuff like that, who a lot of them were largely reformed Calvinist, you know, people, but our denomination doesn't, like I said, we don't require one or the other. So, um, so we listened to him, we pushed back on some things, you know, we definitely wanted to know that he was holding his convictions from the Bible, um, and that he was, you know, well-reasoned, it was, uh, coherent what he believed. He wasn't just kind of picking and choosing random things. Um, but at the end of the coordination council, you know, all these guys who basically disagreed with him on a lot of different, different ways of understanding the scriptures. We said, this guy knows his Bible. He loves Jesus. And he's consistent with his theology. And we affirmed without reservation, his ordination in our denomination. And, and we like celebrated that, you know, it's like, that's a cool place to be when you can say, Hey, we disagree. We don't see things exactly eye to eye, but the things that matter, um, they're there and the love for God, the love for Jesus, right. Um, the unity that we have in, um, in this faith is, um, is there. And, um, so I think we can, we can all learn from, from that a little bit and, um, developing more of that unity, right. About, um, you know, loving God, loving people, um, seeing new moves of the Holy spirit in our churches, in our land, you know, um, I've always, I've always said, like, I, I hope that, that I, I would be open to seeing God move in ways that are, you know, kind of like Jonathan Edwards said, right. A surprising work, um, a surprising work of the Holy spirit, you know, this, um, the great awakening, what would that look like for us to be reawakened to the reality of God in, in today's world? Like these guys were, um, yeah. and, uh, I heard another guy say, once say Colin Hansen, um, you know, I was at a conference and, and he said, maybe we don't have revival because we don't ask for it. Mm. And I thought that was such a good point. Like we're always kind of like, you know, well, I don't see God at work or whatever, but are you, are we praying about it? Are we asking for it? Do we desire it? Right. Um, Or are we just kind of comfortable with just plugging along? Hey, that's, uh, that's the topic for the next time you and I do an episode (laughs) together is great there you go. we want it that that's good stuff. yes i appreciate that man that's yeah it is it's great for sure so yeah well thanks for thanks for having me on here this has been this has been fun absolutely i was gonna say thank you so much for taking the time and i know you've you've worked on a lot of this stuff with whitfield and you knew you knew him well i mean i'm gonna try to do another episode where i kind of deep dive in the history of, of some of his stuff but um i really appreciate you jumping on and um, any, any final thing you want to cover that we didn't, you feel good about the episode? Yeah, no, I, I think this is really great. Um, again, I think, um, just the, the charity, you know, just want to reaffirm that, right? Like have charity, be open to critique from people who see things differently from us. Um, but even the being, you know, open to these, uh, different opportunities, right. To see, um, like the field preaching, you think about how like uh, yeah. that was that was radical like for <laughs> for their day and and uh, yeah. and uh, so I don't know. I think we can all kind of learn to find common ground with people that we disagree with. We can all be a little bit more charitable. Um, we can disagree and and still you know pursue truth, um, but be kind and gentle about it. And and you think like that 
of course, that's the heart of Christ, right? Like, it's not like Christ is some wishy-washy person who doesn't have conviction. You know, he, he speaks strongly against certain things um, in, in the Bible. And yet, what, what an example of compassion, right? So I guess my concluding word would be like, you know, let's just be more like Jesus, right? Like, <laughs> um, Amen. To, Amen. To, to the degree that, that Whitfield and Wesley, we could say, like, let's be more like them or let's not be like them. But really, they're just trying to be like Jesus. And Paul says that too, right? You know, follow me, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's what we're, we're trying to do here is be loving and, and compassionate and um, people of conviction, but and faith, you know, um, but uh, yeah. How, how do we be more like Jesus? That's a uh, WWJD. That was from our childhood, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nineties for sure. That's a nineties thing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's it for me. I, I just think there, there's so much to be said there and you could, I appreciate that you could deep dive into so much here, but um, there, there's just, uh, and, and, you know, I, I feel woefully inadequate to talk about half of this stuff cause I'm not a scholar. Right. But, but I love hearing about Whitfield and, um, you know, I, I've got this, uh, in this book, uh, it's a massive tome that John Piper wrote, which is, uh, about uh, various figures in church history. So 21 servants of sovereign joy. So he's got different, he kind of categorizes them by, um, you know, like some of them are apologists or some of them are evangelists or some of them are by theme, they're kind of thematically uh, categorized. But when he talks about Whitfield, it's amazing because he dives into some of that, you know, dramatic presentation of of things and the, the theater and all that. But he said at one point, you know, he was preaching, um, preaching 60 hours a week, not preparing, not studying, preaching. Like, I don't even know how you do that, you know, and um, and and more than he he was speaking more than he slept actually more hours than he slept. So, um, and you, you of course have like things like Ben Franklin, you know, actually knew George Whitfield was a, a friend of his. I don't know if you, have you heard these stories? No. And, and um, you have these accounts of Whitfield speaking to 10, 20, 30, 40,000 people without microphones, without amplifications. You're like, how do you do that? Yeah. And is it real? And Ben Franklin actually did an experiment where he listened to Whitfield. You can actually find this online. You look up, you know, Ben Franklin on George Whitfield. And he says, I went and I listened to him speaking and I, I backed away from where he was, you know, standing until I could barely hear him anymore. And then he measured that distance. And then he calculated the radius of like that area. And he's like, assuming you give people, you know, two square feet per, per person, you know, I calculated that he could speak, to, he could have spoken to, you know, like 35 or 25 or 30,000 or something like that um, people. So he's like, that actually makes sense with the reports that I'd heard in the newspaper about him speaking to those things. He's like, I didn't kind of believe him before, but now I, I kind of did my experiment, you know, cause that's Ben Franklin, right? <laughs> he's all about the, right, the yeah, experimentation yeah. and stuff. So, so he did that. And, and he said um, that reconciled me to the newspaper accounts of his having preached to 25,000 people in the fields and to the ancient histories of generals haranguing whole armies of which I had sometimes doubted. Right. So, so that's Ben Franklin. So it's kind of a neat wow. little, um, neat little thing. So, so he, he really was a celebrity. Um, Whitfield was people knew him across, you know, the continents, which was unheard of for that, that time. You know, we don't have social media or the internet or whatever. So, um, so it's, I, I love this stuff, man. It's, it's just so fascinating to me. Um, and what a, what a like, unique character Whitfield was. Um, so this has been fun. Yeah. I love, I love talking about Whitfield and, and I, I could probably talk 10, 10 more hours, but I don't have that time. So. <laughs> well, listen, I, Hey, listen, I appreciate it. We'll, we'll, we'll get together again. We'll do another episode for sure. Yeah. That'd be fun. Any, any, any anything you want to talk about or, you know, ways we can kind of embody what we're talking about here, you know, finding, finding unity and common ground, even on things that we, you know, we might not see eye to eye on everything, but I think we both love Jesus and want to uh, be more like him and help people on that journey as pastors and shepherds. And so, um, yeah, thanks for having me again. And God bless you and your ministry there as you're plugging along, trying to be faithful. You as well. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Good man. talking to you. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Methodical Methodist Podcast. If you have enjoyed this show, 
I hope you might consider heading on over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show. It is very much appreciated. And until next time, stay methodical.